Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites and Jebusites. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan. Its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the waters flowed, while the waters flowing down the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who had carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by and to the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. May your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Thanks, Caitlin, and good morning all. Great pleasure to be opening uh, the scriptures with you this morning. Uh, I want to particularly think about this issue of leadership, this issue of leadership as we see it played out in the story of Israel, God's people. Uh, I don't know who you think of. Uh, as the greatest leader of all time, apart from our trusty principal, Brian Rosner, of course. Um, I think of this guy. uh, Do you have a slide for me, please, Enoch? Thank you. This guy. Anyone know who this is? No, not that guy. You went too far. Sorry. (laughs) See, that's a punchline to a very funny joke that's about to come up, so you just need to forget that you saw that. Got it? Okay. This guy. You don't know who this is? Alexander of Macedon or Alexander the Great. Uh, he, uh, look, talk about career trajectory. By age 20, he'd inherited the kingdom from his father, Philip of Macedon. And he thought, look, this is a good kingdom, but I reckon I can make it bigger. And he did. By age 30, he'd basically conquered the whole world. He fought uh, battles everywhere and won, crucially, won the battles. Uh, he expanded the empire from um, you know, Asia Minor to India, basically. 
and everything in between. So he, he took over the whole world, essentially. Uh, he expanded the kingdom far beyond uh, what he had inherited by age 30, 10 years in. He'd done a pretty good job. Uh, he is why the Bible, um, particularly the New Testament, is written in Greek. Uh, he is the reason why we have to study Greek. You can blame him for that because of the, the influence of, of Greek culture, the Hellenization of the world, uh, essentially comes down to this one man. Uh, he is why everywhere in the world is called Alexandria, right? from Egypt to the western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, he is uh, yeah, everywhere he went. He's, <laughs> he had very little imagination when it came to what we're going to call these cities. He called them Alexandria. He took on the Assyrians, the Babylonians, even the Persians. They don't call him the Great, by the way. Um, <laughs> they have other names for him. Um, there's a, a famous quote that, that you may have seen uh, on inspirational quote boards that when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more lands to be conquered. Now, actually, he didn't say that. Um, who actually said that uh, was uh, Hans Gruber, hence the next slide from Die Hard. That was the punchline. <laughs> Thanks. That's great. Um, anyway, so age 32, his uh, empire becomes unstuck. Why? Was it some military defeat? No, he just got sick or drank too much wine, depending on which historian you read at the time. And so at the height of his powers with the whole world under his control, he died. And on his uh, deathbed, like most 32-year-olds, he didn't have a will. Right? And so there's this question of who will succeed Alexander of Macedon, Alexander, emperor of the world. And uh, the answer to that took 40 years to work out. It ripped the, uh, the empire apart as different people vied for succession. And in the end, I mean, that, was the, that was the peak. Right? That, was the, that was the pinnacle of the empire from that point onwards. Point being, you can conquer the whole world, and yet as a human, our problem is we don't live forever. And so if you don't have a succession plan, all those efforts go to nothing. And this is something which uh, every leadership book ever written points out. Uh, Jim Collins, one of the great kind of uh, business writers, leadership writers of a previous generation, studied this in great companies that had fallen. And what was one of the key issues that they faced? This issue of succession. You can conquer the world, but who do you hand it on to? Who continues that work? And this is an issue that the Bible is well aware of. Who will take on from Moses the victories that he has led Israel through and take it into the promised land, the next generation? Right? If Moses doesn't have a successor, then all the confrontation with Pharaoh, all the escape from Egypt, all the wandering in the wilderness will come to nothing. Moses, one of the greatest leaders in the Bible, one of the greatest leaders in history. But if he can't hand it on, then that work will go nowhere. And Israel will become a footnote in the history of runaway slaves. And the Bible really confronts us with quite a sober picture of leadership and this problem of leadership. You see, when you read through the Old Testament, here's what, well, here's what I notice about leaders. Most of them are godless psychopaths. And the good ones, the rare good ones, tend to die. Okay, so that's the problem of leadership that we face. Most leaders throughout history are godless psychopaths and the few good ones don't live forever. And so that's the problem that we confront in the Bible. 
And it's a problem that we could see uh, dealt with in Joshua chapter 3. Uh, if you get your Bible out, that'll be great. <clears throat> They're right now standing at the edge of an era. Uh, they've come to the River Jordan, um, and they've got nothing behind them but wilderness and slavery. And they've got nothing in front of them except a promise and some scary-looking Canaanites. And so the question is, how will they proceed and who will lead them in? Moses famously doesn't get to lead them in. And so it's the next generation that has to take that charge. And the next generation that he chooses is Joshua, one of the spies who was sent into the land. So Moses famously, he's died in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. Joshua is in his first day in the job. What's it going to look like? What's he going to do as, the, as you know, filling these big boots that, that Moses has left? Well, he does a bunch of things in this chapter. And these things all remind us of someone. Okay, so one of the things he does is he sends a bunch of spies into Jericho to spy out the land. Hmm, interesting. And then, uh, as we read in this chapter, he leads them through the River Jordan and the water parts, and they walk through on dry ground. Who does that remind us of? And then he sets up a monument of, of stones at Gilgal. And the idea is that when your children ask you, what do these stones represent? You will tell them about how the Lord delivered us through the river. That's a harder one, but what does that remind us of? Not a rhetorical question. Where else do we read about children asking a question about a ritual that has been the Passover? Okay, so he's, he's giving them his own little educational moment. It's crucial, you know, your children ask you, you explain the stones. In a couple of chapters' time, he's going to meet the commander of the army of the living God. And he's going to be, oh, you look dangerous. Whose side are you on? Uh, an interesting conversation, that. Interesting for two reasons. Firstly, the commander's like, uh, buddy, I'm not on anyone's side. <laughs> I work for God. Right? The question is, are you on God's side? That's a, that's a side point. Because the other thing he says is, take off your shoes, mate. This is holy ground. Who does that remind us of? Moses. So in case we're not getting it, Joshua is the new Moses, right? I will be with you, says the Lord, as I was with Moses. And so this succession plan uh, is what this chapter is all about. I've got a map because I like maps. Thanks, Enoch. This is where they are. Thanks, Logos. Right? So they're um, in, um, on the, the east bank of the, of the Jordan River, and they're crossing over into the west bank of the Jordan River. And uh, Jericho's right there. And it's, um, it's a point of no return for them at this point. Right? So once they cross the river, they're going to have to deal with the inhabitants who are quite happy to live there still and don't really want to share. Okay? So they, they, once they cross this point, it's the point of no return. And the previous generation had to decide whether they would cross over, and they decided not to. So this is, a, this is a poignant moment because the previous generation failed at this point to cross over. They failed to enter in. And every generation has to make this decision, don't they? Every generation needs to make the decision for themselves. Will they follow God and follow his promises? Maybe like you've grown up in a Christian family like me. That's great. But you've still got to make that decision for yourself. And maybe... Um, you don't come from a generations and generations and generations of people who have trusted in the promises of God. 
Well, that's fine because you have to decide for yourself. Every generation has to decide whether they will trust in the promises of God. In this case, uh, their parents failed. And maybe you come from a long line of parents who've failed. Well, this is your time now to decide whether you will cross over in faith, armed with nothing but a promise and some priests and a box. Anyway, point of no return, slavery behind them, promised land ahead. They get a glimpse of the promised land here, Jericho. Now, I've got a picture of Jericho. It's called the City of Palms because it's literally an oasis. Imagine you've spent your whole life in the desert, in the wilderness, wandering around. And here you have the City of Palms. Uh, It's called that because of the palms, and there are palms because it's literally an oasis. There's a spring in Jericho, which is why so many people want to live in Jericho, which is why they need really big walls to keep the people out who also want to live there. So it's an attractive prospect. They're getting a glimpse of the promised land. And at this point, Joshua needs a plan. What's the leader going to do at this point? How? What's his leadership style? What's his military strategy? What's his delegation coaching model? Um, How is he going to lead? I think it's really interesting in chapter 3, verse 7. What do we get from him? The Lord says, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. And then Joshua says to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. How will Joshua's leadership be distinguished? Well, it's listening to the words of the Lord our God. That's all he's got. We don't hear anything about his strategizing session, no mission statement, no values and and, and vision day. They don't go for a retreat and kind of, uh, well, yeah, obviously, um, they don't go and kind of work out what their, um, their game plan is going to be at this point. He listens to the words of the Lord. And that is the core of his leadership. I think it's extraordinary. What, the, the challenges they're about to take on, this place literally has giants in it. And yet he's going in armed with the word of the Lord. With 40,000 soldiers behind him, they're going to follow in after a box. Okay, that's their secret military hardware. Got a photo of it. All right. I don't know if you were going to lead 40,000 men into battle against a very hostile enemy on home ground. Right? They've got the home ground advantage. Who would you send in first? Bunch of, bunch of priests? Have you seen Synod? <laughs> I mean... That's not who, I mean, maybe it is who you sent in first. I don't know. Um, maybe. <laughs> but this, uh, it, it's a strange strategy. And yet again, it's Joshua relying on the promises of God, relying on the word of God, the presence of God, led in by the priests of the tri- from the tribe of Levi. And uh, as, we've, uh, as I said, the, the waters divide and they follow through on, on dry ground, just as happened in the uh, olden days with Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt. So it's an incredible thing. We read uh, later in chapter 4 that on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses. This establishes his authority 
It establishes his credibility. It establishes uh, that he has power from God just as Moses did. And so the people get on board with him. They follow him into battle, unlike their, their parents' generation. They obey his instructions and they follow him into the land. I think about this because leadership is on my mind at the moment. It's always on my mind. But leadership, who will lead the church, is on my mind. And it's, to be honest, a source of great anxiety to me. It's a source of great anxiety for a number of reasons. Firstly, because every time I look at the news or social media, I'm reminded that most leaders are godless psychopaths. And the good ones die. And I don't just mean across the world, although obviously politics and business and, and that's the case. I mean in the church as well, because that's where I, I, what I really care about. Right? When, I, when I see leaders who are obviously psychopaths being exposed, that seems to hit us. I mean, look on Twitter. It just keeps coming. Maybe it's just the algorithm and they just know how to get me. Right? They just know how to get me obsessively, like following up. But it, it, you don't, I don't think that's. I don't think it's just me. Right. In fact, it's not just out there on social media. It's also within our, our church networks and experiences. We know that not most, but a lot of leaders are godless psychopaths who deliberately or not do great damage. And then the good ones, they die. They let us down that way. The good leaders are hard to find. And so what do I do with my anxiety about this? Because it does cause me a great deal of anxiety, thinking of the next generation. I mean, every first week at Ridley, first semester, first week, I pray, I know the faculty, we pray that God will send more leaders for the future because we know that we're going to need you soon, probably. And, and it's always a wonderful, glorious thing when you turn up. <laughs> because I, I don't, I'm serious, I'm not, I don't take that for granted, that the Lord will send workers into the harvest, leaders, good, godly women and men who will actually lead God's people according to God's word. And I, I know Reese has taught me to pray fervently, fervently for the next generation of leaders. So what, what does the Bible, what does this passage have for me in that anxiety, which maybe you share? And if you don't, maybe you should. Well, the first thing is rather than resign myself to cynicism or despair is to remember that we actually do have a leader who doesn't die. We have a leader who doesn't die. In Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter picks up this succession narrative of Joshua. Do you know that? So he picks it up and it's the least imaginative typology in the world. Because, of course, um, Joshua, when it eventually finds its way into Greek, is Jesus. So I wonder, I wonder what typology you could draw between a guy called Joshua and a guy called Joshua. All right? This is, you know, that's just a gimme right there. Okay? And so um, Peter stands up, Acts chapter 3, and makes this link that when, when God says, I will raise up a prophet like Moses, you should listen to him. Well, who is that prophet like Moses for us? It's Jesus. We have a leader who doesn't die, who doesn't, uh, break, who doesn't fail us, who lives forever. And that's a, a source of great comfort to me, to know that the actual leader of the church 
is not on Twitter. The actual leader of the church is Jesus. It's his church, and I trust it with him. Don't you? I trust it with him. Our leader, our chief shepherd, your boss, my boss, even Brian's boss is Jesus. The other thing which I find less comforting but also true and important is that he chooses to exercise his chief shepherd role through temporary under-shepherds. That's what a guy, one of my first parishes together with my wife, he used to call us. He used to remind us, hello, temporary (laughs) (laughs) under-shepherd. I love Anglicans. (laughs) They really know how to put priests in their their place. He leads through people and faulty people sometimes. Um, My daughter um, listens to a lot of Colin Buchanan. And if you know, um, there's a song where he goes through and says, you know, Reese is not the boss. Uh Uh-uh, that's right. Caitlin is not the boss. Uh Uh-uh. Now, the worst thing about that song is you teach a three-year-old that, and what are they going to do? Daddy, (laughs) you're not the boss. Uh Uh-uh. Because Jesus is the boss. To which I say, well, Jesus can give you breakfast then. (laughs) No, that's not what I say. What I say is, yes, Jesus is the boss, but he has appointed me as your parent. Tough luck, kid. <laughs> All right. And so Jesus chooses. It's the same in the church. He's appointed pastors, priests, whatever you want to call them, ministers, as his temporary under-shepherds. And I'm grateful for those in my church that lead in all sorts of different ways, volunteers and paid and ordained and not ordained. I'm actually married to one of them. Um, but I like the others as well, All right. the, the ministers at my church. And ultimately, though, I have confidence in them, not because they're great strategists, although some of them are, not because they're great preachers, although some of them are. Uh, not because they um, have great character, though all of them do. But because they're Bible open leaders. Like Joshua, they listen to the words of God and they do that. And they lead us into that. How will you know the way, says Joshua? Well, you follow the Ark of the Covenant. And what's in the Ark of the Covenant? The law. The law of Moses. I want to celebrate that kind of Bible open leadership. And I want to also prioritize when we pray and when we think about who we recruit into leadership, those kind of leaders. Uh, my, my dad, um, who's sort of semi-retired now, um, used to run a company with thousands of employees. And he had this question that he asked me once. He'd say, you've got four types of people in your leadership. Uh, divided by you know, different segments. You've got the competent and the incompetent. And then you've got the good and the bad, right? as in like the morally good or bad, on board or not on board with your values. Who do you fire first? And the, the, the answer kind of comes naturally. Is, well, obviously, it's the people who are in the worst quadrant of that, right? the incompetent and not on board with your values, to which he says, wrong. Right? The person you fire is the competent terrorist. The person who is competent but not on board with your values, who has bad character, who is fighting a different battle than you, you fire the competent terrorist. It's better to have an incompetent terrorist if you have to choose one. (laughs) And I think actually that's great wisdom, right, because we read that in 1 Timothy, don't we? What are all the characters that we're meant to look for in overseers? 
above reproach, faithful, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. What quadrant is he talking about? It's character, isn't it? All right. So as for, for, for you and me, watch our lives and doctrine closely, he goes on to say in the next chapter. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Please don't be a terrorist. Or at least if you are going to be a terrorist, go home now before we make you more competent. <laughs> so you can do more damage. I don't want you to preach well if you're going to teach heresy. Or if your life is going to lead people to doubt the goodness of God. I think we are far too prone to prioritise competence over godliness and doctrine. So as we move forward into this year, please watch your life and doctrine closely. Please don't let this just be an experience of getting more competent in ministry, though that would be good too. But encourage each other when you see, their, when you see each other's character. Um, celebrate the victories over sin. Have friends that you can confess sin to and temptation so you're not doing it alone. And let us lead God's people like Joshua listening to the voice of the Lord. It would have been very scary standing at the edge of the Jordan with scary Canaanites on one side and nothing but a promise to go on. And maybe that's how you feel at the start of the academic year, standing at the edge of the Jordan, or, or maybe there are other challenges going on. I just want to urge you, trust in the promises of God, trust in the character of God, and look back and remember, not one of the promises of God has ever failed. So he's not going to start with you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you do care deeply about your church. And I pray that you would give us a great uh, comfort and sense of your shepherding of the church through Jesus Christ. And I pray that those of us who are appointed to be leaders under him would prioritize godliness and character, and faithfulness to the Scriptures above all else. We pray this for your glory, but also for the good of your church. In Jesus' name. <laughs>